Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Koch. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. Hey, listener, have you ever thought about starting a podcast? Whatever you love to talk about, we know there are listeners out there who will love to hear it. Start your podcast with Acast and join the world's best podcasters, including Mark Marin, Anna Ferris, and over 66,000 other creators. You can get started completely free at Acast.com. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. So I know I mentioned this last week, but my Varieties of Church Experience survey is live. It's still live. And I think this will be the last week that I ask you to take it. No promises. Um, but what I'm actually, I'm getting tons of responses. I'm getting more than I dreamed I could get. It's going to be a very robust data set. I'm stoked. I'm totally stoked. The one thing I'm having a hard time getting is people who lean more conservative uh, in terms of their religious identity, their Christian identity. So this week, I have a special request. Will you grab the link 
from the show notes here and share it with like three to five people in your life that are to your right theologically, that are, you know, down the middle or more conservative. I know most listeners to this show and myself included are on the left hand side of things. So someone that you know who's kind of in the middle or on the right um, and just ask them very nicely to take the survey. <laughs> you can uh, assure them that I am not out to get uh, a certain result. I, I don't want to only have information from a progressive echo chamber. That's not interesting to me. Um, I really would like to hear from as wide of an array of American Christians as possible. Again, the only requirements are that they are an adult that has some experience with Christianity and the church. That's it. So I would love, 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 love if some of your loved ones and friends uh, could take it. So that link is in the show notes. Um, there's not much to say about my conversation here today with Mark Karras. Uh, many of you will remember him from his previous episode a little over a year ago. Uh, he's a great guy to talk to. And this is a fantastic conversation that is relevant for most of the listeners of the show, I would guess. Almost all of us. Uh, certainly relevant for me. So let's get into it. All right, Mark Karras, welcome back to the show. Your previous appearance was, I don't know, maybe about a year ago, and it was called Toxic Christianity and It's Damaging Claims or something like that. We actually also talked about some good things about Christianity, but that was uh, actually a very popular episode, one of the most popular episodes of this show. I think that people found a lot of good in it. That started as kind of like just some some Facebook content that you had worked up, although it was based on some research and your own experience as a therapist, but you, you basically, you wrote a real book. You turned that and some other stuff into a book called Religious Refugees, which is basically a book about the listeners of this show. And so thank you mm -hmm. for writing a book about us. I appreciate that. Yeah, Dan, it's good to be here. I'm glad you were my target audience. I was thinking of and I owe, I really owe a, a debt to you and your audience. So thank you. Well, that's, it, it actually wow. was a great show and I really appreciated the feedback. And that show basically is, it's all in chapter three. So it, I delineate all those different toxic beliefs, what I call splinters, which we'll probably get into later, but. Yeah. So what we're going to do today is we're going to work through some core parts of the book. We obviously are not going to get through the whole book nor would we necessarily want to because it would be good for people to buy the book. But in particular, you have coined a term, religious disorientation growth syndrome. I want to say one thing just because I do tend to get into sort of official diagnoses occasionally on this show. A syndrome is not the same thing as a disorder. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. tell me if I'm getting this right. It, this might just be my sense of it. Disorders are things that end up making it into something like the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. Th these are things mm -hmm. that have reams of evidence, a bunch of people kind of doing their work, and then they're used in very important ways to get insurance to pay for treatment, to figure out medication or whatever. Syndrome, you can, you can play around with syndromes sort of short of that sort of crazy threshold but nonetheless, syndromes tend to represent patterns of behavior or 
symptomology or whatever that that professionals come to find. In the spiritual abuse literature, there is uh, religious trauma syndrome, I believe is what it's called, Dr. Wynell. That's not a disorder. That's not in the DSM, but it's like a right. thing she found in her research. Am mm-hmm. I getting that right, the difference between a disorder and a syndrome? I, I think that's helpful, yes, um, because the the, dis, the disorder, you know, I have an aversion to labels, but find a benefit to them at, at some level. But right. when you get to the disorder, I mean, then you think path, pathology, and then you think DSM, and then you think, you know, evidence-based and it really, that's when I think of like technical hierarchical people in power saying this is, this is a disorder, but you're right. Syndrome is more what we're looking at as a pattern. That's a nicer way for me. I I, I was basically, it came from the ground working with folks who were dealing with spiritual issues and not to mention it's something that I went through as a religious refugee going through what is aptly called the deconstruction reconstruction process, the yeah. DR journey. So I saw just so much suffering um, with people I work with, people online. It just was getting so ubiquitous. I was like, what's the what's the resources on this? And I didn't find much, although today there's an explosion of material on this. Just so many people that are writing, that are coming out. You know, Brian McLaren's book on this topic is coming out in January. Right. Uh, Michelle Collins got a book. Keith Giles has been working on this stuff. So, yeah. So I wanted to just put a label on something, not necessarily a diagnosis, but something that would be helpful so people can say, oh, my goodness, that is my experience. Totally. Yeah. And uh, that's why we're talking. I'm glad that you did that. And I think that this this syndrome that you've put together, a lot of people are going to find themselves in a lot of this. So before we get into the five symptoms, can you talk a little bit about the research you did that Mm -hmm. went into and and the experience you have that Mm -hmm. went into you being able to identify and sort of codify these five symptoms? Sure. Well, there's absolutely no formal research that went into coming up with this. So let's get that on the table. I'm engaged in formal qualitative research now. And so I know the, the stringent protocols. So this is not a formal study that then came up with this. But this is, you know, I've been an ordained pastor since 2010. So I have that whole church experience. Then I'm a licensed therapist. And really, I was looking at the qualitative research on the de-church. That's the, by Josh Packard's work and David Kinnaman's work. And then the psychological um, and research phenomenon of what's called um, religious struggle, spiritual struggle. I believe that's Julie Exline and Kenneth Pargaman's work. Yeah, Julie Exline's going to be coming on the show to talk about that closer to when I think their book is coming out next year. Really excited oh, about that. I did not know that. She's coming yeah. out with a book. Very cool. Yeah, very I think cool. the key word is divine struggle. And then just examining closely my experience. And then, like I said, I have a lot of friends that talk about this and people online groups, right? Exvangelicals and all these different, yeah. you know, heretic podcasts and people talking about their experiences. So with all that, I then sort of integrated it within myself. And I said, what would be most helpful and then that's when I just kind of sat down and, and wanted to flush something out. Not perfect. I'm sure there's other symptoms. Again, it's not a sure, you know, evidence-based yeah. diagnosis, but I, it's found to be helpful by 
a lot of people going through this dizzying uh, faith shift that they're experiencing. Well, and you know, it's worth noting the timeline for the longer evidence-based, peer-reviewed, whatever. It, it takes a long time uh, <laughs> for by design for those things to kind of come out in the wash, and and maybe there will be some official diagnosis for this, and it might be in fifteen years. And in mm. the meanwhile, you got millions of people. I mean, literally, this whole this whole movement of which you and I are have ended up a part of, of this kind of deconstruction, you know, largely post-evangelical movement might be over by the time anybody in the academic world has really been able to codify it. Hopefully not. Hopefully, you know, hopefully like the, the research or the books you mentioned are all popular books. Um, mm-hmm. There's, mm-hmm. there's not a lot, I, I guess maybe the spiritual struggle research, that's something I'm going to look into and, and see yeah. what's there in, on the more mm-hmm. academic side. But it's all hands on deck is what I'm saying. And so I'm grateful for your work and for your book. Let's go through these five symptoms. And I'd like to get a real life example or two Mm -hmm. from each one as we go. So the first one is doubting or denying one's religious beliefs that were once held as true. This is like every single person who listens to this show. (laughs) We don't need to spend a lot of time here, but maybe give us an example or two. Yeah, let me talk about this. This is important. This is one of the clearest symptoms one has when someone's experiencing RDGS. In the book, I talk about them, like I said, as splinters, those sharp, pesky pieces of neural dissonance deep down into the recesses of our puzzled and entangled psyches that no longer become tenable. And so I I call them in a book, I I call them cytotoxic splinters. Uh, I know it's a big. uh, What does that first word mean? Yeah, so I, I differentiate between cytotoxic splinters and theotoxic splinters. And and so it's just a word. I mean, yeah. at, at base level, we're talking about cognitive dissonance. And so I'm talking about beliefs that we once held that are now cytotoxic means sort of toxic to cells. Hmm. So I'm using that phrase as a way to sort of suggest those older beliefs are causing now a lot of inflammation, a lot of toxicity to our psyche, right? Yeah. And so then I differentiate that uh, with uh, theotoxic splinters. And I think of those as sort of newly emerging core beliefs that I suggest are designed to increase our capacity for love, inclusion, mercy, and forgiveness. So splintering is not always a bad thing. That's correct. And I I will say that theotoxic splinters initially can be very painful, right? Right, right? and and initially, uh, you know, causing some inflammation uh, symbolically to our our psyche. Let me try an example of that. The formerly non-gay affirming person Mm. gets a gay roommate their first week of college. As they develop a close friendship, they then have all this cognitive dissonance about what they were raised with and this emerging friendship where there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with this person. And at first that is, that's painful. The the dissonance, maybe there's an awkward phone call back home with mom about it or whatever, you know, but then eventually Mm -hmm. fast forward five years, they would not do without that splinter because it led to something that aligns with their values in in a more seamless way. Yeah. And so it's really, for me, this is piecing out, flushing out, thinking about the experiential phenomenological experience of the beginning stages of like yes. what starts to happen. Yes. And to flush this out even further, this is something that I dealt with. So this is a, a real belief that I once held. 
uh, which was a cytotoxic splinter. In essence, it became that. I used to believe every passage of scripture must be taken literally, and therefore a holy and just God does use violence to punish disobedience. That was the, the belief. I held it. It was very strong. It was the word of God. And then over time, this theotoxic splinter began sort of burrowing its way sharply into my mind and heart. Ultimately, the newly emerging belief was God is love, and God cannot be less loving and less wise than we are. Therefore, God does not perpetuate violence. Thus, not all scriptures should be read literally. Mm, yeah. And so th- the battle was on, right? And, and so I began to doubt and ultimately deny my religious beliefs that were once held true. That was one of them. And they were sort of neuronal connections vying and battling for space within my, my brain and my heart. And it was real. And I'll tell you, the amount of time it took to get from the, the old belief to fully embracing and accepting and no longer feeling any dissonance, I would say that one took, it took years, right? It was a long process. And in your original podcast, you know, there were other beliefs, you know, human beings are primarily intrinsically sinful and evil, right? God uses a Hitler-esque violence to discipline those who are disobedient. Ah, the body's desires yeah. are are wicked and so on. Yeah. And so I, I think most listeners, especially who have gone through this phase shift, can say, yeah, it was a battle within my my heart, my mind, my psyche of two emerging contradictory beliefs. And we'll talk about reconstruction, but one of the tasks and one of the practical you know, exercise a person can do is what did I believe and what do I believe now? Right. It's such a helpful, like to write it down. Yes. Just something really practical a person can do. Yep. I want to throw a, an image into this discussion that is occurring to me now on the fly. So apologies if it's bad, but you talked about how you have this first splinter, the cognitive dissonance is immediate. And the ultimate resolution of that, where you actually fully feel glad that you went through it, the belief has actually changed in a semi-permanent kind of a way, that takes years often. (laughs) So here's the idea I have. It's Mm -hmm. like I'm a big chunk of metal and I am up against a really strong magnet on my right side. And a small magnet comes on my left side, a countervailing magnetic force. Now, I'm aware of it because now I feel a pull in both directions, but it's not yet strong enough to actually remove me from the other big magnet. I need more of those to keep coming, and they do, right? To go back to the gay friend thing, right? Another friend. Uh, Somebody shares a podcast episode with Matthew Vines where he talks about his book, The God and the Gay Christian. And then mm-hmm. somebody, you know, you love the U.S. women's soccer team and you're watching right. interviews with Abby Wombat, whatever. So you keep having these things. And then an, eventually correct. enough mm-hmm. of those happen that you're like, oh, I'm actually separated from that other magnet now. But you're aware of the dissonance long before you've actually shifted your whole self comfortably so where there is clearly more magnetic force now on the left than the right. Yeah, brilliantly said. And and to take it sort of to the splinter analogy, each one of those people is in essence like a tweezer, right? Yes. And and helping take the shards of the pieces of wood out 
And for some, could it be possible that the entire splinter is out? I think so. Mm. Uh, for some, there might be a few pieces still lodged in. Oh, I like that. And and it could be, you know, people experience phantom theology, like law of the limb, but you know, it feels like it's still there, but it's yeah. not. And it's such a, a disorienting process that people can go through. Yeah, I think splinter is a better analogy than the magnets. So that there's a reason to like it. <laughs> um, let's go to number two here. Uh, the second okay. symptom, subtle or intense anxiety about a person's relationship with God. Subtle or intense. Mm. Uh, maybe give us an example of, of each of those. Yeah, so... Once again, anxiety is grist for the mill in this process, and I see it sort of on a spectrum. I see people's experience of anxiety about their relationship with God, uh, sort of some who, and I've talked to them, it's like, yeah, it wasn't that big of a deal. Like I had anxiety, but, you know, I, I just made a different choice. I just chose a different path. And then you got others on the other spectrum where it's full on panic. And for those, you know, who feel intense anxiety, many times they're deconstructing religious beliefs, beliefs that we talk to that were once held dear. But it's common in the initial stages to feel like God is mad at you. Why? Because if we're questioning religious beliefs, invariably we're questioning the scriptures, yeah. and then invariably we're questioning God's word. Like we're questioning God. God, God's self, right. Right. So, you know, God is the most powerful being in the world with a propensity to violently harm people for rebelling against him in, 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 this, in certain in yes. scriptures. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Listeners, I'm not saying in that, that model that we're generally people are coming from that are along this path. Yes. Right. right. And so and then the threat of eternal torment looms in the background. Yeah. So anxiety is is very common in situations like this. It's very, very painful. Yeah, there is there are some theological reasons baked into the cake, especially of more conservative theologies, right? That will automatically produce anxiety if you're paying attention. Right? Like if you know what it is that you're supposed to believe or you've been raised to believe, hell, various kinds of divine punishment including violence, right? Can I throw another one into the mix and see what mm. you think? I think there's also an axis here between subtle or intense anxiety that is a personality trait thing of the person who goes through it. So mm -hmm. two people, exact same upbringing, exact same uh, data and experiences that cause them to question. But one, like me, has an anxiety disorder and panic attacks and whatever, and maybe or maybe some religious scrupulosity, repeating prayers over and over again to make sure that they're mm -hmm. in, you know, sort of OCD-like behaviors. The other person is a person for whom youth group was really fun. And uh, they made a bunch of friends, and it's a, mm -hmm. a pretty useful uh, value system by which to live their life. And then mm. their beliefs change, and most of that stays intact. There's some anxiety. Maybe their dad got mad at them or something, you know, but, like, yes. it's subtle. And in that case, it would be just the individual's personality and their brain structuring their temperament, right? That's right. Yeah, it would be interesting to piece that out, you know, through research yeah. But I bet you would find you can have some conversations around temperament, around, you know, the, you know, we can get an attachment theory. So whether it's insecure attachment, secure attachment, or avoid and anxious. So that's going to be a dynamic. Then we, we can also look, look at 
you know, some of the beliefs that they, they held dear. And so, because some are like, yeah, I never really bought into the hell thing. I mean, my right. church kind of taught it. So all those different kind of variables would lend itself to, oh, why are people having panic attacks and why, why aren't they? Right. If I can, this is a fascinating quote by Linda K. Klein. She, she wrote pure. Yeah, former I, guest sure. of the pod. Yep. Yeah, yep. exactly. And just to get a sense of, because some people who do not feel a lot of anxiety, they don't understand the, the severe trauma that some people can have. And so I thought, wow, this is a, I've never forget this quote. And she writes, evangelical Christianity, sexual purity movement is traumatizing many girls and maturing women haunted by sexual and gender-based anxiety, fear, and physical symptoms and experiences that sometimes mimic the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Based on our nightmares, panic attacks, and paranoia, one might think that my childhood friends and I had been to war. Now, that is an intense experience on that spectrum. And if you've never been through it, you know, because it's one of those complex PTSD things that, oh, really? Like, it caused that much trauma? Right. But similar to war, and this comes up fairly regularly on the show, but there are very different levels of resiliency to trauma between soldiers who see the exact same thing. So, Mm -hmm. and, and actually something that's interesting as I've been doing research on spiritual abuse, some of the, because there's not a lot of research, a lot of what I'm doing, I need to look at the research on PTSD for war Mm -hmm. veterans and stuff, because there's just way, way more of it. And one of the, one of the directions that they happen to be going in that world is trying to figure out if they can look for markers in soldiers ahead of time to Mm. know what their differential sort of resiliency rate, right? Yes. Like how likely are they to Mm -hmm. be, how likely is a soldier to have severe PTSD after a battle? Mm -hmm. And then could you put soldiers into different parts of the military Based on the, you know, these predictors mm-hmm. and see how much predictive power do they have. That's not exactly related, but just to say these are in theory discoverable differences about people mm-hmm. even before mm-hmm. the thing happens. And if you have had less trauma than your friends or more trauma than your friends, this is not on you. It's just like a thing that happens to be true about you. You know, it, that's really interesting. Yeah, there's so many variables. One that we didn't talk about that's related to what you're talking about, the PTSD, is I do remember some studies, one in particular with after 9-11, and they looked at the PTSD with the, you know, the, the first line workers there. And, and one of the key variables of whether or not someone would experience a PTSD or not was the amount of, you know, supportive, significant others in their lives. Yes. Right. So that I forgot to mention that. I mean, that's huge. How many safe, empathic, compassionate, loving, supportive people uh, one has in their life is another variable, how we fare in the world as far as stress goes and and trauma. So, well, let's put a pin in this to after the symptoms, but the word growth is in this syndrome Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that you have some thoughts around post-traumatic growth, uh, which is also a, a big part of the research on on PTSD. But let's – I want to save that for the end, get through all the negative symptomology first. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. So third, 
the third symptom of religious disorientation growth syndrome is an increase of painful emotions such as anger, loneliness, shame, guilt, sadness, and despair. Uh, what do you want to say about this? Leaving the God that you once knew, leaving the community you once felt a part of, experiencing the loss of rituals and beliefs, being unsure of your spiritual and relational future, and for some pastors and church workers, their financial futures, mm -hmm. or perhaps realizing the people you hurt because of what you once tried to cram down their throats, or coming into a deeper awareness of the injustice uh, of the tribe you feel still harms people with beliefs and practices can cause people to feel a kaleidoscope of different emotions. And I, I firmly believe that one of the biggest aspects of suffering in this whole RDG as process is not knowing what the heck is wrong with you. That's this disorientation. It's this, and you know, as a therapist, this is what people come in, like the sort of global distress. I, I just feel like I'm falling apart. Yeah, I don't know don't what's know. going on with me. Right, yes. exactly. So many clients, that, and that's, that's how you would expect it to be. That's why you've finally gotten to the threshold where you've hired a therapist. Exactly. And we know, you know, a, a phrase that's very apt is that which you can name, you can tame. Right. And it's the inability of us going through these different emotions. Like a person literally could be experiencing sadness, anger, you know, fear, shame, all of these different emotions. And I don't know what's wrong with me. Yeah. Right. So, again, that's all part of the reconstruction process is what, what do we do with that reality? But certainly people, that's one of the biggest um, sources of, of pain. And dis you know, disorientation has a confusing sense about it. And what I find is when people are able to delineate, ah, this is what I'm experiencing. This is the emotion. I'm this is why. And maybe we'll, we'll talk about that process uh, later. Okay. Two things here. One is I did a little bit of this amateur research of my own when my friend Sari and I were creating this SoYou'reDeconstructing.com website, um, which actually I believe that our – I wonder if our Toxic Christianity episode is, link, is is listed on there. But this just – we just released this back in November, December to the world. It's a resource website for people going through some sort of deconstructing journey. And we have a page called Testimonies. And where I got the data from the testimonies is I asked that you have permission – patron Facebook group. I said, can you describe for me the emotional experience mm. of your deconstructive, reconstructive process? Mm. And uh, I took that and then basically coded it by feeling. Let me read back wow. to you the negative mm. emotions on your list. And then I'm looking at our website and uh -huh. it has a list of the emotions. And if you, you click one, you can read the testimonies. So Got here's it. your list again. Mm -hmm. Anger, loneliness, shame, guilt, sadness, despair. Mm -hmm. Here are the negative ones on our list. Anger, loneliness. I'm trying to do this in order if I can. Fear, self-doubt, disorientation, identity disruption, and loss. <laughs> Very similar. Uh, yeah. Probably could reword, you know, we could probably end up at the same list if we rephrase some things. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. And then we also include... 
and you, you know, you and I will get to this in our conversation. We also include some positive ones, which are a deeper connection to faith, excitement, and relief and liberation, which I clumped together. What that tells me is those are two independent attestations of the same phenomenon that's going on. We researched that in different ways and yes. came to very similar conclusions. I'm closer to a diagnosis now. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Moving from syndrome to diagnosis. We're getting closer uh, to disorder. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the second – go ahead. Yeah, please. I, I just wanted to th – this is the emotion researcher within me. When you say you were flushing out some emotions, loss and disorientation, they're not emotions. Right. They're the stimuli, right? That's what's happening and what I feel because of what's happening is would be more of the core, just kind of delineating. No, that's good. That. That's good. We didn't, we're not actually calling these. So I'm, I'm looking at the copy here, but we're not calling them emotions. We're just saying, yeah, below are some testimonies from people yeah. all along the continuum. I, we do say it's important to take note of these feelings along the way. So I guess, yeah, some of it. Maybe well, we listen, it's not, it's not formal <laughs> research, right? It's just, uh, yeah. No, that is good. Mm -hmm. And then here's the other thought. You mentioned mm -hmm. pastors. And mm -hmm. so I recently had Dr. Paula Swindle on the show, and uh, she is on my dissertation committee. And we talked about all the various varieties and types of religious and spiritual harm and abuse. Mm -hmm. And we were just texting yesterday about maybe what I'll do next along mm -hmm. that road, which will then be a mini series for the podcast, as well as my, my aim is to get it approved through our institutional review board so that it can also become peer-reviewed academic research. Hmm. If I succeed at that, I think the topic is going to be spiritual and religious abuse among pastors. And hmm. you mentioned pastors as I, I want to I say there's a, a potential multiplier of hmm. all these things because they've got this provision for their family or whatever. This It's their job as an additional hmm. – it's a multiplier. It's a stressor. It is mm -hmm. a – it's a disincentive to deal with the cognitive dissonance, but then, it, you know, it's one of those magnets if we can, or it's another splinter, or it's a shard that's mm -hmm. going particularly mm -hmm. deep in from the splinter, mm -hmm. um, whichever mm -hmm. metaphor you want to use. Say a little bit about, please, how you think that being in ministry can actually exacerbate this stuff. Yeah, it's it's such a complex process for pastors because some of them accept and embrace the newly found theotostic splinters and because of that some of them, you know, are kicked out of their church and right. but but they do say that, you know, I've never experienced more freedom than I have or some go into a deep depression. I I've encountered so so many different but some some stick in there and they engage in the fine art of suppression, right? You can push the splinter down, and and some people, dare I say, go to their graves with some splinters, some unfinished business, whatever you name you name you want to give to these, you know, things that they you know push down so far into their psyche because they don't want to deal with it. But you know, I have a compassion because there's really good reasons. The pastor who has no other job qualifications no other community, no other identity, not to mention they think, well, what would that do to my kids? What would that do to my right. wife? It is incredible what pastors have to go through, not to mention they're already pushed up on the pedestal. So they're already probably being incongruent on some level because we have a propensity to want to worship 
uh, as Heinz Kohut in self psychology said, we, we want omnipotent type of figures mm-hmm. because, you know, that's just what we need. And they need the idealizing figures, right? So it becomes a symbiotic relationship. It's not a, a dynamic that's talked about a lot. But all that to say is it's complex and pastors have to deal with a lot. And I, uh, I, I have so much empathy for them. They, they can't deconstruct to the extent that they're, they're really able. Yeah. yeah. It's like being in the fossil fuel industry and saying, I'm going to completely engage in the climate change literature. Like <laughs> you kind of can't, you yeah. know, like, I mean, you could. But it will be much harder for you personally to do that mm-hmm. than someone who rides their bike to their barista job every day, mm-hmm. right? Like at the fair trade coffee, you know, coffee shop, right? Right. Uh, right. They can do it. When, when I dug into the climate change research, I was in between those two because mm-hmm. by the time I did, I didn't do that when I was a college student taking the bus. And making zero dollars and, you know, just spending it on my philosophy (laughs) undergrad. I waited until I was a homeowner of a home with maybe I would say more square footage than my family of three needs or at the time my family of two. We hadn't had Soren yet, you know, driving a car that used gas and, and, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, have have some money in a 401k, which is partially invested in. I'm sure, you know, big oil companies just because it's like a it's an index fund. So I was further on the continuum mm-hmm. uh, toward mm-hmm. someone, you know, who's like, I'm an executive at Shell or, you know, whatever at Exxon. So it, it's worth noting that that stuff will change the difficulty of asking yeah. some of these questions in a very natural way. That's not a that's brain. Right. Yeah. And they, you know, they have to be on on Sunday. You know, they can't devote right. a lot of energy right. to deconstructing when they have to, you know, construct a sermon and then, you know, give the the sense that they have it together and, you know, they're good with Jesus and, you know, pl- play the game yeah. to some extent. Oh, I'm so excited for this project. You're getting <laughs> me so pumped. Okay. Uh, let's go yeah. to number four. Fourth symptom of religious disorientation growth syndrome is isolation and criticism in parentheses, feared or realized Mm -hmm. from members within their own family and or religious community. Mm -hmm. This comes up, this isolation criticism, I might want to add in from the, from the spiritual abuse literature, shunning and shaming Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, as, you know, cousins here. This is big to talk about it a little bit. Wow. Yeah. I mean, in every qualitative research that I looked at, this, this was the big one. This was the, you know, the the shunning, the shaming, the rejection. I mean, listen, the reason why this is such a big deal is because loneliness and isolation is kryptonite for human beings and has holistically Mm -hmm. devastating consequences. I I remember social, the social researcher, James House, he said the magnitude of risk associated with disconnection and social isolation is comparable with that of cigarette smoking. And I remember doing some wow. research. You mean numerically yeah. the, the predictor. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Right. And then you have John Cassiopo. I remember reading him, one of the leading researchers on loneliness, it increases suicide, lower a person's immune system, affects their quality of sleep. And of course, you have Mother Teresa, the most terrible poverty is loneliness and the feeling of being unloved. 
there's good reason for this. I mean, and I go to evolutionary psychology here where, I mean, we were tribal creatures, you know, to be apart from the group meant death, right? And, and mm-hmm. to go apart from the group, whether beliefs or practices or rituals may mean death to the community. There was such a big, huge pressure to have these homogenous ways of being in the world because you could die, man. And so that encoded in the brain for people to be mad at you, especially your tribe, literally on a nervous system level, Jacques Ping Sepp talks about the sense of primal panic. It feels like it's a life and death issue to our nervous systems. And we know that yeah. rejection, they've done some research on that, that literally we experience social rejection in the brain in the same era we do being physically hurt. Hurt hurts, right? It's real. It's not to, to be uh, sidelined as far as the conversation piece. And so many people, that's one of the biggest reasons why they leave the institutional church. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a war zone. Uh, in some level, to the nervous system. So I've got two thoughts on this. The first one is that one way to think about the difficulty of being apart from the community and the kind of death that is inherent in that, baked into us mm-hmm. over uh, you know millions of years of evolution, is to think about the flip side. Think about how grounding and good it feels mm-hmm. when you are truly feeling like you're a part of a mm-hmm. community. What a gift that is. What even a blessing mm-hmm. that is. You know, think about moments where – I mean I, I notice this probably most most strongly now with my wife and son. There are moments when – like just last night, I was up in our room on the bed with my wife while she was reading Soren a bedtime story and our cat came up onto – happened to be on the bed. And just Soren's face looking around, mama's here, dada's here. Freya is here. I'm reading my story. Like, oh, I, I felt so good that we could give him that moment of like, he's truly nested in this group that cares mm. for and protects him. And he doesn't have any language mm-hmm. for that yet. But that that shit matters oh at attachment theory and, and for everything. Yeah. right? Like, that's a profoundly forming moment mm. for him. And if he can have those regularly, the kind of good that does for him so thinking about that, that's the flip one side. way to understand mm-hmm. why being isolated from community can be so damaging. Absolutely. Uh, safe haven, secure base. Uh, there's, you know, it's pretty clear. Obviously, we need that. It's instrumental to who we become. It shapes our internal, you know, internal working models, how we view self, how we view the world, how we view other people. And there's some Lisa Berkman and Len Syme, they did some research And those who are in a a loving, supportive, committed relationship have 10 years of extra life ahead of them. There's the the James Cone and his hand-holding experiments. Can I share this experiment? Because it's pretty cool. Yeah, do it. Yeah, great. So they they have a woman with something wrapped around her ankle that zaps her when she sees this sort of red X. And so obviously it's going to be 4th of July in her amygdala. She's an fMRI machine. And so they wanted to see, does it have an effect on the brain if she's alone, if a stranger holds her hand or her partner holds her hand, someone who she feels safe, secure. And literally with her partner holding her hand, it's like nothing was even happening. 
when they look at the brain. So what was once Fourth of July, it's it's much calmer, right? And some yeah. researchers suggest that's the you know an increase of oxytocin, which sort of combats the sort of glucocorticoids and the stress hormones. But I mean, it's it's yeah, so much research uh, about you know the yeah. the power of connection. That's what we're talking about. And the reverse is the power of disconnection, and it's real. Yeah, my second point here is is at the at the risk of a little inside baseball. I want to connect it to the spiritual abuse, religious harm stuff. So as I'm making my case in uh, this early research project, which is flowing into the dissertation, I have to argue in my literature review section for why it matters that this kind of abuse exists. And I think that probably the most powerful argument about specifically religious abuse being a problem is that the literature is very clear that communities, which include religious communities, are like one of the number one factors for healing from trauma and other kinds of even even physical disease or, uh, you know, limb loss, injury, that kind of stuff like major, major issues. Community is a is a giant factor in healing. And what's so pernicious, therefore, about religious abuse is that it makes it less likely that someone will be able to use a community in their healing in their post-traumatic growth because either they were abused by the leader of the group of which they were a part or they were abused by members of the group of which they were a part. And so some aspect of their membership in a groupness that they have has been, by definition, harmed. Mm. And so it's not only the trauma and whatever that would have been, it's also handicapping the recovery process. Mm. And now they will need to either find a new faith community, which, as we've already been talking about, it might be a couple years till they really can have the same brain experience of that group with minus the cognitive dissonance. Like, like, let me flesh this out a little bit and then I'll give you a chance to respond. Let's say you are sexually abused by a priest. Okay. Now the abuse has nothing to do with theology. The abuse is a, a, a sexual predator who used his powerful position to abuse you. But let's say you're also worried about hell that if you go outside the church that you can't go to heaven or, or you can't – your marriage won't count or I'm, – I'm using a kind of a Catholic mm-hmm. example here for ease of use. All that stuff. So you still have to work through those theological issues, mm-hmm. those one true church issues in order to find another church where you might heal from the sexual abuse, which is actually not theological, right? So it's like a double whammy. Mm-hmm. Uh, with this particular kind of abuse. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so complex. When you say, talk about it not being theology, I think uh, the first thing that comes to mind is it's embodied theology, right? Sure. So it's yeah. there, you can't, I don't think you can separate the theology. It's not separable, yeah. but there there's some aspect of, if you just were sexually abused by your uncle versus your priest, there are some aspects of that that you're going to have to deal with in common, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, you know, you, I mean, maybe your uncle's a Christian or, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like your non-Christian uncle, there's the sex abuse mm-hmm. stuff. Then there's the authority yeah, right. figure that's stuff. Right. And then right. there's the finding a new community. And there might be additional anxieties around changing your theological beliefs. But you can't go back to the Catholic Church because you were abused by a priest. Yeah. So you, it's, you know what I mean? It's so layered. And I think that's your yes, point. It's, it's layered. 
it's not just sexual abuse. It's sexual abuse in the context of this whole theological, this embodiment, this whole God interrelationship between God, like not many people separate, especially if they haven't thought through it, like God and the priest are almost one or like God and the church. Oh yeah. Right. Like that, that's oh, yeah. the, they're, they're so connected. And one of the pieces that, you know, in their, in their reconstruction and healing process is the ability to differentiate, of course, well, that's not God. And God was actually angry and sad at, you know, the situation and at them I mean, this is why people can struggle with this for decades. That's the point. When you add these complex layers, and then when you got, well, what if I don't want to go to another, like, oh, I don't even want to go to another church. Now, who am I? Where do I go? Yeah. Who's my community? I don't trust anybody. I don't trust my family. I don't trust, I don't trust the church. I don't trust religion. Who do I trust? What do I trust? And... That's where panic attacks come into play uh, for some, right? Well, that's that's a nice segue into our fifth and final symptom, which is existential oh, angst. You, there you go. <laughs> existential angst concerning a person's Ooh. identity and future self. I mean, you've walked us right into it. So oh, what do you want to say huge. about that? Some people can be like Neo in the Matrix, right? The moment we start to think for ourselves and question the reality that has been presented to us, and then untethered from the tubes of the religious machine, we were catapulted into this far new land. And I remember that movie, right? It's just this utter disorientation. What's real? I mean, that's the essence of this question. Who am I? What's real? Who is God? What is truth? What am I going to do in my life? Who can I trust? These are such huge existential questions that people can just be it's like this avalanche on top of them. They don't know how to move. They don't know what to do. And it's, it's just, it's so real, right? Because, and here's the thing, when you're tethered to the machine, when you have these tubes that are connected to the pastor and to the Bible, and they're pumping these things into you, this is who God is. This is who you are. I don't want you to do this. I want you to do that. Forget about this desire. This desire isn't good. This is sinful. You walk away like, uh, it's sort of like walking into a grocery store if you've never been in there and you see 50 boxes of different kinds of cereal, right? There is something that researchers, I, I vaguely remember talking about sort of this choice anxiety, right? It's way too much, you know, input. I don't know what to do with it. And some people just go into a free state. I feel like I want to do two things at once here. <laughs> and one is I've spent so much time talking about spiritual and religious abuse that I'm starting to forget that that's not what your book is about, that it is about just people who have gone through any sort of version of becoming a refugee from their own religious community, the deconstruction, reconstruction process or journey. And abuse um, could be one of them. Right? Abuse could be one of the reasons. It could yeah. be one of them. But then on the other hand, the way that I am thinking mm. about religious mm-hmm. abuse I would include items like my pastor explicitly claiming to speak on God's behalf, mm-hmm. being taught that I would risk hell if I left my particular church or denomination. Mm-hmm. I would consider these abusive things, which are, you know, so I, I'm torn between saying, oh, and, you know, even though I keep bringing it up, this is not actually a conversation about spiritual abuse and saying it's related. it is yeah. because 
because they are just swimming in the same waters mm-hmm. together that if you really go through a deconstruction period, I wonder what percentage there's no identifiable uh, religious or spiritual harm or abuse as part of that process. I would guess it would be a very small percentage, maybe mm-hmm. some, some people who 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 really just drift away. But those are not the people who are feeling existential angst probably either. So it's almost like mm. those who leave the church that match on to your syndrome, I think there probably was almost invariably, and I want to think about it yeah. some more, but just mm-hmm. off the top of my head, some abuse going on, or at least what we might call potentially <clears throat> abusive instances or experiences that, again, could be experienced differentially by people depending on their chemistry, their neurochemistry, their personality traits, et cetera. Yeah. Right? Some people will take it harder than others. Yeah. It, you know, once again, there's so many interrelationships and nuances to the conversation. There is, I think it was the Breaking Up with Jesus article or Amy Phillips' The Resurrection of the Self, but they talk about the, you know, relationship between some of these damaging doctrines on top of the abuse of parents, right? Because many times if you mm. ha- grow up in a fundamentalist home, you know, spare the rod, spoil a child. And of course, if yeah. you have an image of God who's violent and punishing, and, and that's what you kind of focus on. And there re- some research shows that they grew up in a very punitive home. And so then you have the home abuse, you have then what that you get from that internalization. Then on top, you might have church abuse, and it, but it's all related. Like, I'm so angry at my pastor, and this is something I experienced. I had to differentiate between the anger that I felt at pastors who, you know, I was in a Pentecostal tradition. I remember drinking wine at a wedding, and I told a visiting preacher, and he looked at me, and I was about probably a year and a half in the faith, and he said, Mark, you are in danger of hellfire. That was traumatizing. Like, I, I was just making small talk, right? And so you get all different, you know, if you masturbated, you know, then you, you thought you were going to go to hell and it, yeah, women. Oh, the big one for me was if I'm masturbating when Jesus returns at the moment. Oh my goodness. How embarrassing. I didn't, I don't know if I thought I'd go to hell because I didn't have that kind of, I had a very strong once saved, always saved kind of a bent to whatever I had mm, been taught. Mm. But I, I did have a lot of anxiety about uh, how that might go down. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> the timing Again, wise. Again, yeah. as like a 14 year old. Yeah, nuances, right? Uh, different, we all have different stories. But I, the point I was making too was I was displacing my, all my anger on the pastor and the, you know, the strict mm. church that I was a part of with some of the angst and trauma and hurt I experienced with my dad right? An authoritarian Mm. kind of guy, you know, abusive, and I could never please him. You know, I projected that stuff on God. I projected that stuff in the church. And it's it's not talked about often, but it's so important to differentiate these things. Of course, you would be angry at the church. Can we also look at what you were so craving the church to give you, right? That propelled you into this environment where you you wanted to be saved. You wanted to be given the truth and shown the way. You were desperate for it. And so there's so many different layers to the conversation. Well, now you're you're hinting at, I think, the growth part of religious disorientation growth syndrome, 
which tells me it is a perfect midpoint to take a little break. And when we come back, that's what we will get into. So we've spent basically this first hour talking about all the shit. And then the next hour, we're going to start talking about uh, various ways forward and how God might bring something good out of all of this suffering. So I'm excited. Very cool. There is a Patreon campaign associated with this podcast. It's the way that you can support it financially if you'd like to do that. It's five bucks a month, but there is a sliding scale. If you can't afford that, you can email me. My email is in the show notes. But if you do join the Patreon community, you get access to at least two exclusive episodes per month, as well as the patron-only Facebook group, which has become such a rad little community. Um, And the most recent exclusive episode is a conversation I had with Jackson Washburn about progressive Mormonism. What that is, does it exist? What does the continuum look like in the LDS community between kind of more classic Mormons and some more scholarly, left-leaning Mormons? It's something that I wasn't really even aware of until I became friends with him on Facebook and seemed like an interesting conversation, and it was. So... Check that out if you're a patron. That will show up. Uh, it should already be there in your patron-only feed. And yeah, okay, back to my conversation with Mark. Okay, Mark, so you called this thing religious disorientation growth syndrome, but thus far uh, in going through the symptoms, I don't think that the word growth would be the first word that anybody would associate with what we've been talking about. So why mm-hmm. is the word growth in the syndrome name? Well, because I'm an optimist. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because, and, and, you know, I didn't list it as a particular symptom. However, right after I shared the symptoms in the book, I talked about this disorientation can be a powerful catalyst that leads to tremendous um, emotional, mental, and spiritual growth. But it's because I find that to be true. I've encountered so mm-hmm. many people who, once they get out of this disorientation process, they do find a new self, sometimes a new God, sometimes a new community, um, sometimes a new way of being in the world. And they do say something to the extent of, I've never felt so free in my life. So... You know, there's some literature on post-traumatic growth. Uh, I mean, it's new. It's new, right. but it's. Um, I don't want to dismiss it. But it's it's a big no. It's a big focus these days. And in fact, I just came from a little sort of adjacent to American Academy of Religion, which their conference is going on right now. I'm not attending it, but a friend is was involved in this one through University of St Andrews in Scotland, and uh, one of the presenters was talking about this and and the theological kind of implications of the post-traumatic growth literature in neuroscience and psychology. Uh, And there's some really interesting stuff there. Mm -hmm. There is some sense, uh, I think we're going to save a specific sort of theological lens of this for the end of our conversation, but just to tease that a bit, there's something really theologically full of meaning about the idea of God using suffering using bad experiences, using evil or the aftermath of evil to bring about blessing and goodness and gifts and reconciliation. And uh, there's something very particularly Christian about that 
as well, depending on how you look at Christ's death and resurrection. Uh, so you can say a little now if you want, but I, I want to save the full – I kind of want to end there because I think that's a nice poetic way for a theology podcast to to end a topic Yeah, like is this. that on the – some process thought? Yeah, I think actually in this case it was more uh, feminist theology, feminist, womanist, liberation, like process yeah. and open relational theology would mm-hmm. all – they would all probably congregate around this same idea of the cross is not the thing that God planned from the beginning to kill his right. son, but rather – it's an example of what human beings and systems do when they have something, someone like Jesus, they kill right. him. And then what does God do in response to that? He raises right. him, right? Like it's yeah. more that kind of a, a yeah, model. I, well, we could talk about it now if we're, we're if we want to. Well, okay. Well, that gets into my, I believe it's chapter 10, but that for me, that's, this was such an important piece for my journey. And in the book, I, I say, listen, these are some thoughts that I have about God. One of the things that I've tried to do in the book is I'm not here to tell you what to believe about yourself, about God. If I do give thoughts about God, I specifically say, this is stuff that I've been thinking about. This is stuff that really helped me. But I don't want to be another God in their life. And I think that is a a path to liberation is to kill God is to kill the authoritarian big capital O other so that you can truly emerge, that you in God can truly emerge. But one of the things I do talk about is a sort of a process uh, way of, you know, the uncontrolling love of God and how that comes into play into the DR journey. Let me just briefly say that that language of the uncontrolling love of God is a title of one of Tom Ord's books. He's been on the podcast I maybe three times at this point. Uh, so that's, you know, the idea that God just by God's nature does not coerce people. God does not use violence to accomplish God's ends. God invites to accomplish God's ends. Um, and so you, if you want to look into that stuff, just find any episode that Tom Ward <laughs> that's has right. been on and it will come up for more detail. But please go on. Yeah. So, you know, in the book, I talk about, well, what does it mean? Because for some, and not all people, but for me, when I got out of the, the other side of this, from an old faith to a newer faith, I really adopted the sense of a God who is moment to moment loving to God's greatest capacity, right? That changed Amen. my life. But we have to talk yeah. about uh, the our image of God, evil, petitionary prayer, and social justice concerns, miracles, and trust in God. When it comes to the DR journey. So, for example, where the hell was God when this stuff was being pumped into my brain? When I was in prayer meetings in this particular kind of environment that was teaching these particular kinds of things about hell, about sexuality, right? About other people. uh, What what, what the hell? What was God doing? Like, couldn't have God just said, uh, yeah, Mark. Uh, you need to kind of get out of here. And I'm going to tell you, A, yeah. B, and C is completely wrong. Uh, but this is what is true. God didn't. God was silent. What the hell was that? We have to make sense yeah. of that. Uh, and granted, maybe I, I think a little bit more philosophically. So that was a concern of mine. But I, yeah. Yeah. Some of that's personality type. Like some people don't ever need to like 
really explicitly rewrite their theological beliefs, mm-hmm. like especially write them down like you were saying. I'm the kind of person that should do that. <laughs> You're the kind of person that should do that. A lot of the listeners of this show are the kind of person that should do that, that really should look at yeah. it. But also we all have loved ones in our lives. My wife, for example, uh, probably never needs to do that. It's not it's not so central for her, these abstract claims. But there's a continuum there, and you you just discover yourself somewhere along that continuum, yeah. and I don't think you choose that at yeah. all. Yeah, I mean, some people, you know, they could care less. There might still be emotions around that, yeah. though. I mean, the the thing is, it just it might be more a question of how you best process this question. If it's more straightforward yeah. and abstract, or if it is something you process through more relationally and emotionally, yeah. or something. I like mean, that. I, I I say. Who wouldn't want to know where God was when that stuff was happening, right? Uh, others right. are just more trusting. Yeah. Maybe they've trusted God, you know, in the big picture, so they don't think so deeply. But this gets into theodicy, you know, right? Where where the hell was God? What was God doing in the midst of this spiritual abuse or spiritual trauma? Right. So, you know, flushing that out, I found was helpful for myself and certainly from feedback, you know, emails from all over the world that this particular chapter was very helpful. So in other words, and then what does it mean to trust God? You know, I'm coming from a place God was in control, you know, the praise songs and trusting God and God would deliver you and God would, you know, overcome and, you know, kick the enemy's ass. But what does this all mean? What does trusting God in all this mean if God is not in control? Right. So it's Mm -hmm. a, it's an important stuff to piece out, you know, Mark, I don't know how to pray. What the hell does, if God is not in control, and I've learned this because I was being abused and God wasn't, didn't want that abuse. I don't believe in Calvinism anymore, right? God was, didn't wanted no part of that. It wasn't, God wasn't puppeteering. It wasn't part of his plan. So if God is not in control and can't instantaneously and unilaterally have God's way, then what the hell, do, what's the point of praying, Okay, but so what, something that I'm – a little red flag that's going up for yeah. me as the kind of person that I yeah. am, I don't want my healing from my spiritual harm to be contingent on my solving the problem of evil because I don't mm-hmm, think mm-hmm. that I will ever feel confident that I have done mm-hmm. so. Th- so there's a part of what you're saying that to me sounds like the hard work of therapy mm-hmm. in the best and most robust sense of like – Dealing with the feeling of rejection or isolation from God, God, where the hell were you? Like, that's like, oh my gosh, a client says something like that and you start frothing at the mouth and licking your lips. Let's dive in. Let's get into that. But then there's a the more abstract way of like, well, I'm going to now find a theology that's going to answer that for me. Uh, I mean, I've been trying that one for 20 years yeah. or so and I have better answers than I had then, but I don't, I, I'm not going to kid myself that I'm going to solve that one before I die. Right. right? Mm-hmm. So it's like a, a better angle mm-hmm. on it, but it's, it's an intractable, probably ultimately unsolvable problem. It's the biggest problem in Christian well, theology. Listen, Thomas Ord would disagree. <laughs> I know he thinks he solved it, but he solved it in a way that has uh, other problems that are still that, that have emotional valence. Yeah. To yeah. So it's, you know what I mean? Yeah. Cause yeah. What about animal suffering? Right. I, I don't think it, th- that's a whole other conversation, but, but you're right. Listen, this is one of eight different chapters, right. On the reconstruction journey. 
So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm not making this as the be all end all for those who are curious right. about this. And it's not just, you know, the big term theodicy, you know, like for people to say, I don't know what it means to trust God now because of, you know, what happened and what, what the beliefs I came out of. I hear that all the time. I don't, I, I don't know what the trust is true. So it, it's not sort of this, you know, ephemeral, just theodicy abstract some of things, these things are practical, but not everybody will sink their teeth into this. So fully agree yeah. with you. And I wonder if there's a gender piece in this too. I think that, well, actually there could be a gender, gender class and race dynamics here. I do remember Josh mm. Packer talking about the de-churched and, you know, this, this really wasn't an African-American issue, right? It does seem right. like it's a, a spoiled white Western, <laughs> which is funny because they are disproportionately actually harmed yes. by oppressive symptoms. Yes. And so it, it would be interesting to try and tease out why they feel less of a personal visceral need to work on the problem of evil. Like that's in, that's its own kind of very interesting study. Like, what is it about me, a mostly non-suffering person that I got to figure out the problem of evil. And this person who's suffering a lot more is not focused on that. Is that a Maslow's hierarchy thing? Or is it that they actually have some clarity that I don't have having been spending more time at the hands of suffering or more time in poverty or something like yeah. that? Right? And, and I'm, I'm not, Interesting. I'm, I'm linking it to theodicy, but also the whole de church thing. Right, the whole sort of mm. leaving the church. One of the dynamics that that Josh mentioned and didn't flush out, but he he said that you know those who are maybe you know African Americans in their church communities, they don't have the privilege to leave their church because because to leave the church means leaving resources, right? So that's yes. it's it's yep. just a fascinating dynamic. But you're right. I remember reading reading or listening to an interview with a black pastor in an urban context and talking about that he basically was forced to become a paralegal. He like the percentage of his time that he spent going over contracts with his parishioners was like disproportionate to any pastor in a white suburban context, right? Who they have their lawyer for that. But you know what I mean? So Yes, the church being much more central in the social right. fabric in poorer communities. And there are some very interesting theological questions about it, should the church be that? Like all things equal, is that better? Is that worse? But at any rate, that's the yeah. facts. That's how it is now mm-hmm. uh, for those communities. And I think that it's it's good to recognize yeah. that stuff. So just to kind of put a, a slight bow on this chapter and this topic, uh, yeah. you know, I didn't really talk about what's helpful, but – you know, I do talk about, you know, an image of God that's not in control, that obviously is not downloading instantly information. It's just such an important mm-hmm. point that there's this, you know, evolutionary process that's been happening from us drawing pictures in caves to humans, you know, landing on the moon, right? There's this process of information coming, of learning, of growing. And there is a good question of why doesn't God just tell us? I mean, if God is real, and I and I suggest, and and for some it may be comforting, for others not. But God doesn't have vocal cords, and God is spirit, and that's there's something to be said about that. Now, one may ask, then, well, what about the biblical text? 
then we can get into, you know, hermeneutics and interpretation. Yeah. Mechanisms for inspiration. But, yeah, right. but to come into contact with a different kind of God who's not in control, um, who's not planning mm. all this, then, yeah. then that leads, I talk about the, the need to trust yourself and trust experience, which is so neglected. I mean, even the Apostle yeah. Paul, he wrote, you know, what was it, 2 or 3%? He quoted Jesus. Like we're trusting a person's experience of the divine, right? Where it wasn't all about, well, here's a quote, here's a quote, here's a quote. And I do allude to that as an example how we also need to trust the the God within us, hmm. the spirit within us. Interesting. And that that's not a bad thing. It's a messy thing, but it's not a bad thing. And the alternative is trusting the experiences of everybody else. Even though somebody may say, well, I'm not giving you experience. I'm giving you the word of God. Those who, you know, are astute would say, no, it's still coming from experience. You're not interpreting it sort of as well. This is the ultimate God's yeah. word, but through your own biases, preconceptions, et cetera. I have two questions I want to ask you, and we can try and do them quickly before we go on to some of these yeah. other ways forward that are not explicitly theological. I would like you to to speak a little bit to this resurrection idea that that mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier, that moving from the idea of the crucifixion and the resurrection were all part of God's plan because God's holy and can't be around unholy humans. So God will plan to send his son to die in our place. And so God kills Jesus basically on purpose because God knows that's the only way I, now, the lack of imagination that gives to God is very funny to me. But so there's that moving to a, a view that's something more like, no, no, no. Like if God shows up on the scene in the person of Jesus, then we will kill him. Like that's what we'll mm -hmm. do. And then what will God do in reaction to our killing him? Mm -hmm. God will accept that death and then we'll turn it into resurrection and basically make something beautiful out of something disgusting. Mm -hmm. And my friend Chris Hoke, who works with prisoner reenfranchisement and, and getting them jobs and stuff, uh, he calls it practicing resurrection in our own life is is when we we do the same. We sort of theologically model ourselves after that work of God as a therapist mm -hmm. or I guess as a pastor, any of the people mm -hmm. that you've worked with. Do you have examples or can you speak to the power of switching to a view something like that in a person's life? as they are trying to move through all of this stuff. What, what comes to mind, and I don't know if it fully answers, but when I think of the resurrecting kind of God, I, there again, I come into this belief that in each moment, God's resurrecting. Like God yeah. is using death. If you think about the evolutionary process, death is intrinsic to life. It, oh, there is yes. this symbiotic relationship. There is, God is always up to something, right? Deconstructing without reconstruction is destruction. But God is in the mm. creative process in each moment, luring us to ever increasing moments of goodness, of love, of truth, of beauty, of healing. Gosh, and there again, we get into the image of God. Who is God? And then to embody that, and to say that death is doesn't have the last word, never, no yeah. matter what it is. And there's a distinction between God planning it 
and the distinction between God doing something with these raw materials, right? There's a difference between, you know, God planning a, a woman's son being kidnapped, murdered, raped, and the difference between that, which God never did, to, oh my goodness, look what God is doing through these parents who started this foundation who have saved these amounts of lives and these kids and these impacted these that's a total we have to differentiate between a god who causes evil and suffering to a god who is a god of resurrection in each moment and that's beautiful man that's sort of like jesus saying i only do what i see my father doing like that's why then we say we look around what is god up to like God is never not up to something like what? And it could be in my own house. Like, oh, well, there's my wife and my kid or my job. You know, there's always something. We need to be semioticians in the spirit of Leonard Sweet, you know, always looking at the signs and being able to read the signs of what God is doing in the earth. Yeah. I just yesterday was listening to a song and a lyric caught my ear and I shared it with my wife of this Bill Fay song. He's uh, this, he's probably like 75, 80 years old now, this British kind of folk pop songwriter and uh, who had a resurgence of his career after 40 years off. Very cool story. But he has this line, the song's called the healing day. And the line is every battleground is a field where sheep can graze. <laughs> and so it's like, yeah. And there are these dead bodies and their organic material increases the soil. And now the sheep, you know, have the grass from that nutrient rich soil and either you can eat some lamb or you can have some wool that is sheared off of that sheep for your clothing to keep your body warm so that you can live. You know, that's not to say that the death that occurred on the battleground is meaningless mm-hmm. or that that suffering doesn't matter. But it is to say that that's not the end of the story right. for the particles and the piece of geography involved in that Mm -hmm. battle. Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so there's something cool about that. Um, One last question on the theology bit. And now we're, this is getting into practicality, which will be a nice bridge for the rest of our conversation. And yeah, I did resist getting truly practical for. Come on. This is all practical, man. This is is practical. It's true. Uh, Practical and restorative. I I resisted. So you've talked about a few examples of, uh, instances where changing our beliefs, our, our actual doctrinal whatever, that has therapeutic value. I'm wondering if you have a sense, especially from your time with clients, where does that tend to happen on the timeline? Is there a point where you get to a point in your reconstruction, you're trying to heal, where if you don't change some beliefs, you'll stall out? Do they tend to come later on and you do some personal work, you learn to trust yourself, and then you reassess? Is it entirely random or are there patterns that you see? It's entirely random. No, oh, no okay. okay. I'm, I'm just, oh. oh, I have a sense of humor. I'm kidding. Um, it's so complex. <laughs> Everybody is so different, right? There's yeah. so, I mean, in the book, I talk about stations. I don't use the word stages. But I I delineate between eight stages, right? I'm sorry, eight stations. Stations. So, but everybody is so different. Like you said, I mean, there's temperament and there's family upbringing and there's how close were they to the people in the community and what did they actually believe and did they have other different kinds of trauma in their life already? And 
So everybody is just so different. There's no, you know, golden tablet sent down from the heavens that uh, gives us, you know, six principles to uh, the grieving healing reconstruction process. So I, it's right. so hard to talk about that, to be honest. It's so... I wonder, would this would this kind of rule of thumb hold up in your mm. experience? The more explicitly theological someone is, the earlier in their healing process they're going to need some fresh concepts uh, with which they can work? Well... That's going to be important for them, right? Like you said, there's the people who I need to make sense of it, right? Then there's the people who, eh, a little bit, right? But those people yeah. really need to make sense of it. You know, making sense of it is like, you know, I'm, I'm hanging with people right now. They can't move on until they make sense of what happens. But what's so wild about it is that's that one of, that's the illusion, because it's very possible that you could make sense of it. And within your spirit, within your psychology, you're still not okay. Right. It's sort of, mm. they think the Holy grail. And I talk about this in the last chapter. You think that I, if I just get these answers, if I figure out this and this theodicy, and for me, that's, that's being on the hamster wheel. Like some people can get answers and say, ah, oh, okay. But for others, it's much more than you need in getting cognitive answers. And that's where maybe some trauma work, that's where what they really need is a witness. And we'll, we'll talk about sort of the, the unholy huddle. They, they yeah. need other things. They think they need information. What they need is an embodied, compassionate other to actually be with them, to see them, to know them, to value them, to love them. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, right after I asked my question, I thought, well, I think that I would be the kind of person for whom I would think that what I need is new <laughs> theology, but what I might actually need is like sitting with my emotions Ooh, for a minute, come on now. you know, and feeling them. Yeah. Right. And, and what's interesting about that is as, I don't know if you know this, but I've told this before on the show, my own personal being able to admit that I was theologically liberal truly and not be afraid of that didn't happen until I had a thick experience of God's love directly through contemplative practice. Mm -hmm. And so even in my own story, something bodily had to happen right. first mm -hmm. before the real chunk of the, of the growth could happen abstractly. But so that let's, let's roll right into this unholy huddle. So we, in the book, you have eight of these stations, sort of eight ways of, of grow, of growing out of, this stuff and, and moving forward, we don't have time for all of those. Uh, I selected mm -hmm, five mm -hmm. that I wanted to talk about. We already talked about open and relational theology as one. We got four more. And the first of those four is you call it an unholy huddle. So this is replacing at least temporarily that church community with a community of people who may or may not be religious is what I, I take it to mean. But that will support you in a kind of basic human cognitive way. They, they, they are around you. They can reflect you. They can, they can uh, accept you. Am I yeah, right? Yeah, the, the unholy huddle. You know, I think of the healing process in part keeping in mind the Lorraine Cross. Uh, for your listeners, the Lorraine Cross, it's a cross with two cross beams, right? So it has the vertical and two horizontal pathways. 
And so for me, it's such a wonderful symbol of our need to have that vertical relationship with God, with spirit, but also not neglecting the two crossbeams of one relationship with self, but two relationship with others. I do include creation in that. But I mean, to keep it simple, that is vital for an ex- a person who experienced the abundant life. So within that crossbeam is relationship with others. And that's where the unholy holy huddle comes into play. I'm thinking sort of uh, players, they regularly form a tight circle known as a huddle and they encourage one another. They strategize about how to advance against their right. opponents. And so that's what I think of these people who are travel with us to the unholy abyss, embrace the, so-called unclean aspects of who we are, right? They help us grieve losses, maintain our balance, and move forward, cross the goal line uh, toward healing and integration. And they'll help us strategize for excess, extinguish harsh judgment, shaming, and criticism, and celebrate victories across uh, along the way. But here's the thing. They're rare. It's hard to mm. find the witnesses right? Those with those people who can be with us and witness our trauma. Witnesses? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Yeah. yeah someone like that. who's with us. I, I think I probably took that from somebody. I don't know who, but yeah. yeah, something very powerful about that. And one of the things that I find is people like, Mark, I read this, but I don't know how to get it. My heart yeah. aches as I, you're right. I, I'm desperate. I, I feel so alone. I feel so isolated. It is a conundrum that mm. people have caused your trauma and that it's going to be people who are going to bring some hope, healing, and integration. I get it. But that's kind of what we talked about earlier, right? When we talked about those two sides of the same coin, mm. that people can cause so much harm. Your community can cause so much harm. Because we're so wired for community and the example of my son being surrounded by everyone in his life in one moment, it's just so powerful in our brains, just the way that we evolved. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, it's back to, again, the issue of this is why it can be so pernicious to in one, in one fell swoop, traumatize someone and remove their community from them at the same time. And then it's very difficult to truly recover without replacing that community in some way. I think at its best, this is what I hope the you have permission Facebook group Mm -hmm. is, or can, can begin to people can find each other through it maybe and form closer personal relationships. And I, I have, I have an unholy huddle that I have been a part of now for a year and a half. It's all the people who were on the, uh, so you're deconstructing.com release party mm. episode, which aired in December, which is uh, Sari, Sarah, Trip, and Myron. And we call ourselves the Theopsych liberals because we <laughs> went to this Theopsych seminar and we are more liberal, but we, ha- that's an unholy huddle. Like I can go to them with anything, you know, anything related to faith stuff and, and whatever. And they love me and accept me. I can say things that w- might be controversial and work them out in real time. And they know that, you know, and vice versa, I can make that space for them. It has been a massive mm. blessing in my life. I'm not saying this all to to brag. I'm realizing in real time talking mm. to you that I have one of these unholy huddles and it has been incredible. It's been yeah. so much more than I think any of us thought it would be when we kind of formed this little friend group a year and a mm. half ago. 
As the wise philosopher once said, Mr. Rogers, anything that's human is mentionable and anything that is mentionable can be more manageable. We can talk about our feelings. They become less overwhelming, less upsetting, and less scary. The people we trust with that important talk talk can help us know that we are not alone, right? We need people. And so on a practical aspect, and this is where you might have to test the waters of who can be a witness, you know, is think about your group. And listen, even if it's a therapist, even if it's a spiritual director, like you don't have friends, but, you know, go to somebody else. I don't care who it is, a rabbi, I, I mean, imam. I don't know. Go to somebody. Talk to somebody. Somebody needs to hear your story. Like the fever is the body's way of ridding itself of of these germs. And for the psyche, talking about it is a way to bring some healing to the soul. It's just something that's so important, so imperative. I've never met a person that reconstructed well without whether it's one or two or three, some people in the corner. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fair to say that, you know, five years from now, from whatever time you're at in this thing, it's not going to be tenable to still have nobody to talk about this with, right? Like eventually your, your brain is going to like force you to find somebody. And if you can't find a good person, It'll find someone who gets you into drugs or, you know, it'll find somebody that will give your brain that feeling of being in a community understood, not judged or whatever. And so this is one of those items I would imagine maybe that 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 takes a a bit of work. And as you said, maybe some trial and error, which also might be painful because that can be re-traumatizing. You think this person is going to be that person and turns out they're not. And then you are freshly, your wound is reopened. Mm -hmm. So maybe adjusting some expectations before you go on that process. And and coming to the realization that, because sometimes we can naturally feel like a victim and coming Mm -hmm. to the realization that no one is going to save you. Like maybe they will, but you have to reach out their hand. You have to extend the hand to reach out for them too. Like there is this powerful realization that you like we can choose to be better or or bitter. We can choose to be alone and not take risks. And I say I I get it. People have hurt you, right? It totally it totally makes sense. Being vulnerable in an unholy huddle conjures up memories of biting into a lime. I totally get it. And here's the conundrum. And here's the research. If you choose to be alone and not take some risks to find one or two people, then, you know, that pain of being alone could be worse than you actually trying to take a risk and finding somebody. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, so let's get to the third of these five uh, stations of healing and growth, becoming aware of and using one's emotions. What do you want to say about that? We touched on it a little bit, right? And this is where knowing our emotions and knowing what's happening for us in the moment is going to be huge. It's going to be to be able to delineate our anger, our sadness, our shame, our fear. This is all what it means to be emotionally intelligent, so to speak. 
this is your ability to name them will help you tame your emotional, uh, your disorientation. So for example, let's be practical. We need to be in contact with the sadness. All emotions do two major things. They communicate information and they have a built-in plea for action. They want to move us to do something. That's what's so brilliant about listening to them, right? The problem is, is when we avoid and we split and we use these defenses to not deal, we don't come into contact with the, the core experiences that we have. So to know sadness, okay, why am I sad? Sadness communicates it from there's been losses. So now what have I lost? Oh, community. Oh, that's right. A relationship with God. Oh, right. The relationship with the Bible. Like you start like, oh, that's why I'm so sad. That's is the losses. And we know sadness typically propels us to move towards others. Like it moves us to experience some sense of comfort, right? But if we don't listen to it and we bury it, we don't have the intelligence that it's trying to bring us. Or what about anger? Some people don't do anger well. Maybe they grew up not really wanting to, you know, touch it because their parents told them, you know, stay away from it. They saw you being angry and they just, stop it, you know, put a smile on your face. That's not a Jesus thing to do. And so you have to split off your anger. But what happens is being touched with our anger, anger communicates there's, a, there's been injustice. I want you to be in touch with your anger. I want you to be in touch with your rage, because if you listen to it, then you can start naming your injustices, what feels so terrible to your being, Mm. right? This theology and this interaction and this portrayal of God and, and, oh, you're right. And so working with people, it's like, yes, I feel listened to. I feel that's exactly it. I am effing pissed because of this. How could they do this to me? I don't want you to split your anger. I want to validate the hell out of it. Yeah. And so there's something powerful about that. And then anger has the built-in plea for action. It is meant to propel you towards some kind of righting the wrong. The problem is, and I talk about this, if you're stuck in the station of angstville, um, this is some of the stations people can go through, it can wind up doing more damage to you, right? We know from the research what cynicism does, what anger does to your body, to your somatic, to your glucocorticoid, stress hormones, et cetera. You're doing more damage to yourself to hold on to it and to not allow the fuel and energy it has to do something about this, right? So yeah. I can go on and on with the different emotions, but it's that that's the point, right? In this process, how can we help you learn what is happening, what the truth is, is in your experience? I feel like I hear this a lot of times and maybe it's just the kind of stuff I end up being exposed to and some of it's probably schooling in the kind of abstract that like listening to our emotions is important. I'd like to spend a few minutes on some explicit examples. I'm going to ask you to think about one or two that you can share from your clinical Mm -hmm. experience. I'm going to give you time because it's difficult sometimes on the fly to think about confidentiality and how could anybody, you know, be identified through that. And while you think about that, I'm going to share two quick ones myself. When you're talking about anger, this one, it reminded me of a recent one for myself. I wrote down on my little note that I keep for my therapist for stuff to talk about that I was noticing that I had anger two years after the fact of 
the thing that went down where we left our church. And what finally happened there was that I had volunteered to be a youth youth group leader. And I actually, they sort of did offer it to me, but it was the kind of thing where it sounded like they were going to be coming to a decision soon that people who were gay affirming could not be youth group leaders in their own theology. Not people who are gay, people who are gay affirming in their theology. And I was like, well, then I'm not going to do it. And then you'll pull the plug on me. We have to explain it to these kids in three months or something. And that sort of ended up being the kind of the last thing for us at our church. And it was like, all right, I, I got this podcast going. I'm like doing ministry actively out in the world. I can't even do this. Like, we got it. We're just going to leave. And I was feeling this anger two years after the fact of like, man, for what? Like, why did they have that policy? Uh, I was frustrated. It's not a gospel issue. It's a culture war issue. And just feeling angry about it, feeling like I wanted to be a part of that. And I think that that was bullshit. And I'm, I'm still close with many people at that church. And it's, you know, it's a complex thing. But I did feel that anger and I was like, I gotta, I gotta think about this. Like, what is this mm. telling me? <laughs> and another recurrent example from my own life that I have had more time with and understand better, I get acute depressive episodes and I've learned this over time when I've been too physically busy or, uh, and or mentally busy. So when I've had too much on my plate, I, I can look back and go, ah, that, that was a full calendar. And the solution is to look forward to the calendar and move things and cancel things and postpone them or whatever and give my body and mind some space. Depression is not an obvious consequence of, of working too hard, but that's what I've found. And so when I have these acute depressive uh, episodes occasionally, my body is telling me, uh, among other things or possible other things, you have been doing too much. And then I get angry that I can't do as much as I'd like to do, but I don't set those limits. Those are pretty inherent biological limits that I'm of what I'm working with. Uh, and so that's the, when you talked about the messaging, mm -hmm. that is what I thought of. That's an example of, that's what my body is telling me. Okay. Brilliant. So you've had a chance to think of non-confidentiality exposing uh, examples. You got any? So what we're talking about is the power of knowing thyself knowing our internal emotional experiences, to listen to them and really to be mindful of them and then to listen to the information to propel us towards adoptive and healthy action, right? So there, there are so many examples, but, you know, the, here's an example of, you know, humans being the original sinful hellbound people. Growing up believing that we are intrinsically sinful, that nothing is good within us, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, right? Yeah. I mean, some people, you know, I've worked with, and listen, this is my own story too, that you, you internalize that. I mean, if we're basically so bad that we can be thrown in the fires, then that means that we're more bad than we are good and redeemable, right? There's something that that's communicating. So then we go to the emotion of shame, right? Yeah. Then we go, when people start linking, this is why I feel so bad about myself. 
This is why I don't like myself. This is why I don't think there's anything good about me. This is why I feel completely flawed and tainted and that I can never really amount to anything really good. I was told by my parents these theology of how God viewed me. And they would bring it up every time I did something wrong. They would guilt me or shame me or use a verse to do that. When they can come into contact with the shame that's also linked to anger at the injustice of that, things, then we could start working with, oh my God, this is the toll that this has taken. Then we can look mm, at yeah. these are ways I've tried to defend against shame. And sometimes, obviously, narcissism is, you know, we try to compensate. Uh, we try Donald Nathanson's work, you know, we either attack self or attack others or we, we withdraw or we engage in some addictive uh, tendencies to avoid the deep feelings that I'm not okay. So once people can start listening to that, then we can start changing it. it you know, it's almost like once we can arrive at the destination that we really are at, then we can move to a different destination. And that's mm. the, and then once the shame meets the corrective emotional experience of the empathic, compassionate presence, the unconditional positive regard, empathy, and congruence of the therapist. And in that space, healing can finally uh, come to be. And then they can then internalize a different sense of self, not based on how an angry, punitive, violent God thinks of them, but maybe tapping into who they really are and a therapist and others helping them see that. Very powerful. You talked about emotions having a message and an action plan. Action tendency. Yeah. Action tendency. Can you spell out in that shame example how you would describe the met? Like, so when I acknowledge that mm -hmm. shame as that kind of client, what's the message in it and what's the action tendency? Yeah. Well, shame, uh, you know, it's one of those emotions that it has to be connected to other emotions for there to be something positive that comes from it. But shame, okay, the information is communicating, I'm not okay. I'm a piece of shit. Mm. I'm no good. Like when shame arises, especially if it's not um, a state shame, but more trait shame, more shame that's been internalized for a long period of time. Yeah. That's the message, right? So the action tendency is, and I just mentioned Donald Nathanson's work, we either, we experience the shame, and then we either withdraw. Adam and Eve is like a perfect, you know, a symbolic example of that. Hmm. Or, or we attack self. You know, we can cut ourselves. We can treat ourselves like crap. We can self be self-critical. We can attack others. You know, think of the bully who has a lot of shame. And then he needs to put others down to feel good about himself. Or we can just do run and numb activities, you know, engage in drugs or any kind of addictive activity to numb ourselves from the shame. So shame by itself, especially toxic shame, is is not good. But we yeah. have to we I, we recognize I'm feeling shame, mm -hmm. and then we might be able to go, oh, why am I feeling shame, mm -hmm. right? And then and claw our way back to some of those sources mm -hmm. uh, to sort of cut off the supply. Yeah, and to know that the antidote to shame, as Brene Brown has so uh, wisely said, is you know speaking it. Right. So knowing if I'm feeling shame right now, instead of engaging in the four, you know, different types of defenses, I could say I'm feeling shame right now, or I can go to Kristen Neff's work. I can extend to myself self-compassion. 
Well, there you did it. You just brought us to the fourth of the five. I was going to bridge us there myself by saying uh, if we are listening and being mindful of our emotions, therefore we are being mindful of ourselves, and that can lead to self-compassion. Uh, but you beat me there. So self-compassion is is number four. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that a little bit. Dan, I will say that self-compassion is, has completely changed my life. Mm. I, I I wish that your your listeners can get how deep and, and powerful self-compassion has been for me. Like, take that shame. I was infested with shame, right? I, my mom was a drug addict. My dad verbally abusive. Then I have sort of this inherited shame. My great-grandmother died in a mental hospital. You know, I cut myself. I tried to kill myself. I tried to get AIDS. I was shame infested, right? Wow. And what's wild is becoming a Christian at the age of 21, yeah, I mean, I got saved. It was very, very powerful. But what really dissipated the shame for me was self-compassion. And uh, I will say that the, the Buddhist tradition has this one, right? They're, they are the connoisseurs of how to love oneself practically, powerfully. And so I didn't get this much from the Christian tradition, although the camp contemplative tradition kind of helps a little bit. It's sort of a stream that is very helpful with that. Yeah. So this is where Kristen Neff's come, work comes into play. And this is just, let's put it simply, how do we respond to ourselves in the midst of our struggles? And the key is, can we respond to ourselves in the midst of our struggles as we would respond to a dear friend who is struggling? How do we respond to ourselves as a dear friend? How do we respond to ourselves as the father of love instead of the father of lies? A father of lies, symbolic of the authoritarian other. So this notion of responding to ourselves, and Kristen Neff gives three components to what constitutes self-kindness, self-compassion, and that's common humanity. That is uh, mindfulness, becoming aware, and that is self-kindness. So the cor- the opposite correlates are common humanity. The correlate is that um, feeling like I'm all alone, right? That I'm the only one who's really struggling with this. Then we have mindfulness, as and then the opposite of that would be fusion. If I have a belief, that means I am the belief. If I have a belief that right. God hates me, then I'm fusing with that thought as if that's true. And then self-kindness, yeah. the opposite. I of am my thoughts. Judgment. I am my beliefs. I am my, yes. right? that's the yes. opposite of mindfulness is I'm completely uh, identified with this thought I'm having, this desire I'm having. And then mindfulness right. separates those two. It says, these thoughts are passing through me right now and they will pass. And then they're not here anymore. And I can choose to look at them as opposed to engaging with them automatically and reflexively. Brilliant. The brain is merely a thought spitting machine. It does what it does. I am not my brain. You have to ask yourself, who is it that is now being conscious of the fact that I'm having a thought, right? So beautiful exercise to do. But this whole piece, this tripartite three mode, self-compassion, self-kindness, mindfulness, and common humanity, that, you know, the research is just every positive correlation you can find. Right, better relationships, right. a better motivation, decrease of depression, decrease anxiety. 
So for somebody who has internalized shame because of uh, unfortunate toxic theology, shame through abuse, here's a practical and researched way of, you know, healing that shame is through self-compassion. That takes a lot of work, takes practice. I did an eight-week self-compassion course. But learning how to treat yourselves as you would a dear friend who is suffering is a game changer. And uh, I could say much more about that, but that's it's life-changing. I think that's going to need to be its own. Uh, I think we're going to have to have a further conversation, be it for patrons or for the main feed. I'm not sure, but I think we need to hear that story in more detail and, and get into more detail on the role of self-compassion and the role that the Buddhist tradition and contemplative Christian traditions played in that for you. I, that uh, my, all my radar was beeping wildly when you were sharing that. So mm-hmm. that we'll just have to say, let's look forward to that in the future. If to you'll be agree continued. To it. Yeah. Um, so we've got one of these left, uh, one of these five uh, stations of healing ways forward. Again, there are eight in the book. We don't have time to get into all of them. I chose this one for last because I like, well, I guess originally I wanted to do theology last and we messed that up. That's fine. Uh, but I wanted this one near the end because it's something that I have been thinking about a lot in my own clinical training and development, uh, living into one's values, living congruently with the thing that one really actually values, what you think are the most important things, uh, principles, whatever in the world. Um, where do you want to start with this conversation about aligning with your own values? Let me start with Brani Ware, the palliative caregiver who was able to hear the vulnerable, tragic, and treasured stories of those on their deathbed. And she wrote the top five regrets mm. of the dying. And this is what just rocked my world when I read it. I think I need to read that book, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. I'm adding yeah, that right Yeah, and now. she discovered okay, that on. one of the top regrets of those coming close to the end of their precious time on earth. Forgive me, I'm being emotional. This is, uh, That's but fine. she said, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. One of the top five regrets of people at the end of their lives. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected to me. And I'll tell you, yeah. Dan, I, that is something that I, I live by. And it's something that's hard because I've lost friends because of it. I've lost ministry partners, ministry opportunities been rejected. I'm a heretic, apostate. I'm from the devil. But I'll tell you, to be able to live a life true to myself and to know that that's what I'm doing, um, it's it's something that um, it does bring a, a large degree of freedom for me. And so in the last chapter of the book, I talk about values. I talk about value work. You know, when you're at the, think, you know, as an experiment, when let's say you were off on an island somewhere, you know, like lost, you know, you got, uh, you know, abandoned on the island, the plane crashed, you're able to get back to, you know, your family and friends, and they were having a funeral. And they were sharing the things that they will miss the most about you. And they were sharing that who they thought you were, what is it that you would want to hear? You know, who are you? If there was a, you know, on your your gravestone, like if you listed, 
What do you want to be known for? What is that? What are those values? Like values are not goals. They signify our chosen manner in which we want to engage ourselves, others, and those around us. They, it can't be accomplished, right? That's what we want to stand right. for in the world. They're our inner compass. You know, these values, they're something that we want to keep in mind because as we remember through the deconstruction or reconstruction process, some of the us have this existential crises where who are we? I've been listening to the pastor and their interpretation of, you know, the Bible and what that interpretation says who I am and what I should like and maybe what I shouldn't like. And I remember being the Pentecostal, you know, this is the music you should listen to. This is what you should look like. Um, Mark, you had long hair. You need to cut your hair. Women, they couldn't even trim their hair because it was a sin. You know, it was, you know, cookie cutter Christians at its best to come out of that. And then it's like, no, now you get to write your own story. It's daunting, but it's powerful to live a life true to yourself. What are your values? Who are you? And then to be able to practically write them out. And in, in the book, I you know, have a whole list of different values one can have, right? Acceptance or authenticity or spirituality or love or gratitude or justice, curiosity, adventure, cooperation, whatever it is, being inclusive. Can you name your top five values? And from that top five, can you name your top two? And come hell or high water, and even if you don't understand every theology, it doesn't live tomorrow, live according to your values. That's what you know, right? You don't need to know everything else. What are your values? How can you live according to them today, tomorrow, and for the rest of your life? And that's what I get into in that chapter. Fantastic, man. I've got three things to say about values mm -hmm. before we wrap up here, and I'll keep them pretty short. One that we don't have time to discuss, but that is clinically very interesting is this brings up a real wedge between individualistic societies and collectivist societies. And that is something that's difficult for especially people in the mental health field to figure out how they want to address where they stand, cultural competencies. You might believe that your first generation Vietnamese client really ought to be living a life authentic to her values, but it might not be good to tell her that right away. Uh, well, obviously you don't, you don't yeah, tell people yeah. what to do anyway, but it might not even be good to, to sort of massage toward mm -hmm. that direction yet because of her family culture. And so there, that's just, that's its whole, a whole other conversation. That's so yes. interesting. First of all, whatever the culture of the client, they're coming in because of some distress. And so in sure. that, we, of course, want, don't want to place our own individualistic values upon them. But really, even in value work, we can help them find their values and help them find a right. balance between how do I honor right, my parents and my family and at the yep. same time honor my own self in my own context. And of course, it's tricky, but for them to be yeah. able to name it to see it and then have some strategy to how to balance that well, it can be very, very, um, you know, helpful to clients. Yeah, 100%. Uh, second thought is that the Jesuit author and priest James Martin uh, wrote a book about Thomas Merton called, I think it's called Becoming Our True Selves. And his, his take on Merton is that he believed that to become like Christ is 
to become our true selves as God created each of us, that you don't sublimate your natural self to the to the universal and vanilla Christ self such that everyone then looks the same once they get to be like Christ, but that everybody being like Christ results in a multiplicity of different kinds of selves because that is God created a variety world, not a uniform world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that that there's something very interesting about that idea. If that sounds interesting, you could look up uh, James Martin's on being episode. Uh, He goes into length with Krista Tippett on that topic. Anything you want to say on the, yeah, I think what's helpful for me is the notion of soils and the same seed planted in different soils can have a different effect. Right. Hmm. And this, you know, if you can go to different uh, geographical locations and that same seed, you know, so that's why the soil or soul, right. The same seed of Christ planted in the soil or souls of our own heart can emerge in different and unique ways. I mean, there's a reason why there are, you know, how many 30,000 or more different species, different kinds of plants and flowers, right? Like God must dig diversity in some way. So I I think that's important. I think, you know, while there are 30,000 different Christian expressions of the faith, diversity is just a reality. And can we really be comfortable and emerge to who God wants us to be. And that's, like I said, it's a daunting challenge. Finding our values is going to help with that. And like I said earlier in the podcast, we might have to have a symbolic funeral uh, with the, the big others in our life that have so much power, that have told us who we are, what we should believe, what we should do, what ministry looks like. We need to burn it all, trust in the spirit within us, and then you know, follow Christ as we, that's why experience is important. And I don't want to downplay that. Yeah, that's great. Um, And then here's my last thought really for our whole conversation here. And is also on this issue of values. As I have reflected on my values at various times, I've realized that this is one of the strongest. uh, Yeah, I should probably say maybe it's the second strongest thread that has kept me tethered to Christianity. I would say the first one is probably direct experience in contemplative mm. practice through prayer, whatever. Um, and then number two, I think, is is values. Mm. And, and thinking about how, you know, no matter what I end up experiencing in the future, you know, Mother Teresa famously didn't experience God directly for decades, even when she was, especially when she was in the middle of her ministry. I mean, that could happen to me. But I read the Sermon on the Mount and, you know, not having it in front of me, but just going off the top of my head, the way Jesus talks about money, poverty, about worrying about what we will have and what we will eat, the way Jesus Mm -hmm, talks mm -hmm. about forgiveness and priorities. If you have something against your brother and trying to worship anyway, you know, forgive our debtors, everything, Just, just like the the approach to the world that we find in the sermon on the mount and in the similar sermon on the plain in luke that just is th- those just are my values that mm-hmm. uh i i don't think that's going to change uh if it does it does mm-hmm. but i've been formed by that teaching and I, it has accorded with my experience it has accorded with 
the types of people I find myself drawn to, uh, to bring magnetism back mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. the type of people I would want as leaders and mentors and exemplars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are my values. And so for me to live out those Christ-like Sermon on the Mount values makes my days go better. The example that comes to mind is if you try and save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, you will gain it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that verse can be used abusively uh, by controlling religious figures who want you to completely deny mm-hmm. yourself mm-hmm. and be a doormat. But in the absence of something like that, I think the principle is true. You know, if I decide, you know what, I'm really exhausted and I don't want to do these dishes, but I told my wife that I would do them so that we could have no dishes left over when we go to bed and I do them, I always am glad I did them. I always get a sense of meaning from doing the chore I did not want to enjoy. And I maybe even if I decide to put on a podcast or some music, I'm even getting more into the podcast or more into the music. I'm I'm even enjoying that mm-hmm. better as I accomplish this task because it's value uh, aligned. Right. It, I did a thing aligned with my value and then I get – a, I get an, a brain reward, not in the spiritual sense, but in the in the neurological <laughs> mm-hmm. sense. And so That's right. uh, the values thing I, I just have been really fascinated by for the uh, last couple of years. Wonderful. Now. You you did – when you talked about that some of the things you were doing, it would fall under the value of, of justice, right? Then you talked mm, – so yeah. you talked about the value of justice and forgiveness and community and honor and love – you know, with your wife, it's so helpful to then, you know, have that one word, that one value. So you can live, like you said, there's, you will never feel more alive than when you are living according to your values. And listen, as a therapist, there's a whole approach based on this. It's acceptance and commitment therapy, right? I I need, that's like the next thing for me to dig into. My therapist has told me, he's like, this is my jam. And you will love this. <laughs> and I have a book, but I'm just so at capacity with school right now. Yes. So that, but that's like on my short list of things to look yeah. into. Yeah. So, you know, the point is to accept our experience. Um, listen, we can be depressed and still live according to our values. So the essence yeah. of the approach is saying we're not trying to get rid of your symptoms. Like we're trying to, you know, you can have – RDGS and still live a life that's worth it, still live a life that's Mm. full of vitality. Why? Not because you figured everything out, you're not disoriented or you have a little anxiety. No, because you're living according to your values despite all that. So it really does, it gets into then what is the abundant life? And I think this also gets into Peter Rollins' work too, it's like like it's not about having a static state of peace, right? And it is actually our attempt at f- trying to get a life that doesn't have anxiety and depression. We're trying to not be human, right? That's part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Can we accept the human state that we're in in a world that is full of, you know, beautiful chaos and still live a life according to our values that is the real question. That's what ACT helps us to accomplish. But also in this piece, and I encourage people, you don't need to figure it out. Yes, I know you're still feeling a little anxiety. You're not sure. But what are your values? Can you do that tomorrow despite you feeling all this? And it's sort of like this aha moment. Like 
yeah, I can be a bumbling mess, but still live in a way that brings me some life and joy. They're not mutually exclusive. What a great place to end, man. The book is called Religious Refugees. I will have a link to it in the show notes. Uh, Also, uh, there will be there's going to be a link to the five symptoms and these particular five out of eight stations of healing that we have talked through. I'll also I will have by now said that in the intro in case people wanted to look at those. Uh, And I have a link to our earlier episode on toxic, uh, toxic Christianity. Anything else you want to share with people before we go? Namaste. Yeah, just a really appreciate <laughs> this time, Dan. Great talking with you. Fantastic. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. Man. So fun. Thank so you. good. Cool. All right, man. Well, now we can give our brains a break. And Ooh, eat some man, we went for it, brother. <laughs> <laughs> we did. We went. We went. What is this? The Joe Rogan experience? Wow. All right. Um, thanks, man. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. And maybe uh, I was, what was I thinking? Um, just going to. I was going to think I was going to send you the, maybe my whole book of divine echoes, I don't, you know, just to give you Patreons or something. I'm just going to be crazy. Yeah. My, my publisher doesn't know. You want to do that? Yeah, yeah. Will they let you do that? Yeah. I, can I, uh, how many patrons do you have about? 580. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll give that to you. So why don't you, I'll, I'll send you a PDF. <laughs> I'll send you a P. I'm we're keeping this in. This is this is a great way. Oh, come on now. Behind. Come on. Behind the curtain. Okay, I'm conspiring with God right now. I'll give them the full divine echoes and I'll and remember, I gave you the chapter three. Uh, Yeah. And I did post that to the patrons at that time, but I'll repost it. And I'll um, I'll give you another chapter in that book, too. Okay, so if you're a patron and you made it this far. Mark Harris is off. Hey, it's a Christmas season. A How could I not? It is. We are recording this on December 8th. It probably will come out after Christmas. But you will get his previous book, Divine Echoes, which is about prayer, and these and two chapters from the current yeah. book. How very generous. Yeah, Thank you, listen, Mark. Listen, man. This this is nothing. I do what I do because I love people. I love journeying with folks. It ain't about the money. It ain't about the pizzazz, the pleasure, the esteem. It's um, yeah. it's a pleasure. It's a privilege. So I appreciate being on your show, Dan. Yeah, I feel the same. All right, man. Be well. Thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing the episode. Um, check those show notes. First of all, if I could remind you, please take and share that survey with more conservative loved ones. That would be so great and be the most helpful thing to me right now. I can't wait to discuss the results with you guys, but I got to get all the data first. And uh, in the show notes, we've got Mark's five symptoms of religious disorientation growth syndrome, if you want to review those, as well as the five stations of healing that we spoke about. There are three additional ones in the book. I've got a link to Mark's previous episode with me and a link to the Patreon, because if you want that previous book and all those resources that Mark just offered up, got to join the Patreon to get that. I didn't even coerce him to do to do that. Um, there's also a link to my Instagram and my Twitter if you want to be in touch and the deconstruction and reconstruction resources that my friend Sari and I have put together at SewYourDeconstructing.com. Links to all of that in the show notes. Uh, thank you guys so much for your continued support. See you next week. 
Are you thinking of starting a podcast? Whether yours is about gaming, K-pop, business, or reality TV, there's no podcast too niche or too broad. And there are listeners out there who will love what you love. So let's hear it. Starting a podcast with Acast is easy. You can create, grow, and make money from your show across all podcast apps, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Head over to Acast.com to get started for free.